0: Welcome to In Conversation With a podcast from the Lancet Microbe. It is June 2023 and I am Irina Dalavecchia. Today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Anika Singanayagam, a clinical lecturer in infectious disease, and Dr. Jay Zhu, a research associate, both in the Department of Infectious Disease at Imperial College London. We will be talking about their study, viral emissions into the air and environment after SARS-CoV-2 Human Challenge. A phase one, open label, first in human study. Thank you, Annika and uh, Jay, for joining me today. So I first wanted to ask you if uh, you could give us a little um, explanation of what human challenge studies are and what they've been used for in the
1: past. Um, So human challenge studies, um, they're studies in which healthy volunteers are deliberately given an infection. Um, And we do this in a safe and controlled environment with the best healthcare supports, support. And the aim of these types of studies is to learn more about the infection um, and the disease cause. But what we really aspire to through Challenge Studies is to provide a platform uh, to accelerate the development of new vaccines, um, new therapeutics and even um, diagnostics. And so the second part of the question, so Challenge Studies, they've been carried out now for decades and a variety of infections, including um, other respiratory viruses like um, influenza, uh, like RSV, um, rhinovirus also, um, but also for many other pathogens um, like malaria, uh, typhoid, uh, dengue, norovirus, uh, just to name a selection. Challenge studies played an important role. For example, they were involved in the assessment of antiviral drugs for flu, like Oseltamivir, Um, But they also have um, helped to speed up vaccine developments, for example, for typhoid, but also for cholera. Um, And most recently, we've seen a malaria vaccine. The interesting thing is that challenge studies, they're not normally undertaken during a pandemic. And um, this COVID challenge study, um, it was unique in that sense. So it was the first in the world to do that.
0: Thank you, Annika. And so what exactly prompted you and your colleagues to do this study with SARS-CoV-2?
1: Well, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, so back in 2020, the importance of challenge studies as part of the UK's um, pandemic response, the COVID pandemic response, uh, was recognised. And it was recognised particularly that challenge studies could be valuable in helping us to speed up vaccine development, to try to more rapidly triage um, the best vaccine candidates that would then go forward into larger scale clinical trials. Um, And so setting up the study was then driven forward by a consortium of academics who work on challenge studies, um, industry partners, and also the Vaccines Task Force, which was part of the British government. Um, And so this first study that we report on in the paper um, here, it was a virus characterisation, a dose finding study. So the purpose of the study really was to identify the minimum dose of virus that causes infection in more than 50% of people that we challenge. I think that human challenge, challenge studies um, are important because they have advantages over field studies because you can perform the study with a level of control and a level of detail that it's really impossible to achieve in a field study. So, for example, we control the virus strain that we give, um, the exact dose of virus that we administer and the route by which we inoculate people. And then we can perform intensive longitudinal sampling um, from the participants. And we do that from multiple sites um, and we can do it throughout the entire course of infection, right from that point that we know the virus enters the body. And that's important because we can then study those critical early time points after infection and before people get their symptoms and know they're unwell. And that's really hard to capture um, through a real world study. And also, I mean, in in this paper, what we also report is um, that we performed measurements of virus that the participants emitted into the air and the environment. And we were able to do that also longitudinally um, and with a level of detail that's not been done before. And um, for me, that's exciting. Um, and I hope you'll agree if you, when you read the paper, um, because it can provide us with unique insights about people's infectiousness and about transmission. And these are areas that are not easily studied, um, but they have really important public health impact. So some listeners might, however, be concerned about the ethics of
0: administering a pathogenic virus such as SARS-CoV-2 to to healthy individuals who have no prior immunity acquired either by previous infection or by vaccination. Could you give us some information about the measures you took to minimise risk to participants and what sort of scrutiny you also received by ethics boards?
1: Of course, that's a really important question. So the safety of participants is paramount in challenge studies. We have a whole range of safety measures that are in place to ensure that the study is um, carried out as safely as it can be. The protocol um, and the justification for the study, um, it was evaluated over several months by an independent specialist research ethics committee and they were convened by the NHS's Health Research Authority. Um, And that committee were specially trained to work on considering the ethics of this particular study. And so that ethics committee, they carefully considered things like the purpose of the study, um, the balance of potential risk against um, the possible benefits. Um, And they focused on ensuring that where possible, that the risks that are identified are minimised and um, also really importantly that um, participants can make make their own free and fully informed choice about risk before they get involved in the trial. And this study in particular, it was undertaken by an expert team um, who have extensive experience in conducting respiratory virus human challenge studies. So um, we know that the participants were in the best hands. We also ensure importantly that only those who are in really excellent health um, who have therefore very low risk of severe illness with SARS-CoV-2 are enrolled. Um, and we performed really detailed medical screening to ensure that. We also uh, used something called the Q-COVID tool, which was developed during the pandemic. And we use that to provide a personalised estimated risk to that individual um, of getting more severe COVID-19. Um, And so once we had carefully selected volunteers and they had provided their informed consent, the study then took place in an inpatient quarantine unit um, and that was within an acute NHS hospital. And so in that setup, there was very close monitoring of the volunteers. That happened 24 hours a day um, by doctors and nurses who were on site. And because it was in an NHS hospital, we had immediate access to world-class clinical care should it have been required. I think also important to mention Um, is that when we were inoculating the volunteers, we started off with a really small amount of virus, just 10 infectious units, and that was the smallest um, quantifiable amount that we could use. And then we uh, uh, quarantined the participants for at least 14 days. Um, in the inpatient unit. And that was to ensure um, their safety, uh, but also the safety of the study team and the wider community. We ensure that the participants are well and that they are not infectious at the point that they're discharged. And then they remain in the study with regular follow-up with the study team for a whole year after.
0: So Annika, you've already mentioned a few of the, of the aspects of the actual study, but Jay, could you tell us a bit more about the specific questions you aim to address in uh, the study you published in Lancet, Microbe.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for the questions. So the main question many questions we want to answer here is when the SARS-CoV-2 infected persons are most infectious to others and then how long they can maintain infectious. So we hope to answer these questions can help us to reduce the community uh, transmissions in the populations. So we know for the transmission to happen, while the wireless needs to be release through from your nose or either from your mouth and then they have to survive on the uh, environmental surfaces or survive in the air before they can reach the next successful infectious. So for the environmental surfaces such as the uh, tables or chairs or door handles. So, so they actually there previously, there are a lot of study. They use a PCR result from your nose and throat swaps to indicate the infections of the infected people. And then because of this kind of data is very easy to access. But in this study, uh, we can directly measure the viral load in the air by using a, uh, using an air sampling machine. And also we use a, a sampling mask to directly catch the human breast from the infected participants. And uh, also we uh, use a swaps to collect environmental surfaces such as tables and chairs and also TV remote, door handles To So in this way, we can so combine all this data. We can have a better understanding of the timing of the contagious. And also we can describe the the whole transmission pathway in details. So that's the main questions we want to uh, answer in these studies.
0: What were your main findings and what were their implications?
2: So the most interesting thing uh, we found in these studies is that we found that wireless, wireless emission we found from the air or also from the items which were just described, tables and chairs and also door handles are actually more correlated with a viral in your nose rather than in your throat. And at least suggesting that it's a very important message that when you are wearing a mask, it's very important to cover your nose. Or also in suggesting that the cells in your nose actually is uh, mainly uh, place for the virus to replication and uh, also the main place for virus to its health uh, from your nose. And second, secondly, we found that the people with uh, more symptoms didn't actually emit more viruses into the air and environmental environment. and, and also we found that a lecture flow test is a very, very useful, useful way to detect infectious. So if you are not feeling very well, get a lecture flow test daily. So it can be very useful to reduce the uh, community community uh, to reduce the trans- trans- transmission in community. And also in this study we provide more evidence for the contribution of the uh, format transmission. So previously very few studies they actually culture uh, live viruses from the uh, environmental services. but in this study we have successfully cultured the uh, infected wireless from tables, te- television remotes, and also from the door handles in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Then also uh, another interesting that in this study we actually describe a transmission pathway. So first, viruses enter from the nose, and then t- contaminate your hands, and then through your hands contaminate those frequently touched items such as door handles and TV remotes, which large particles and have have real chance to deposit in these relatively small surface items. Finally, our data, although we only have 18 tested participants, we still find that uh, actually two peoples actually responsible for 80% of the total viral we found in the air. So this suggest, this suggesting that uh, actually a super spreading event, or uh, we have a super spreaders in our in our populations.
0: Could you also tell us a little bit about the limitations of your study?
2: Yes, yes, of course. Well, Our study also have limitations. So first of all, uh, as I just mentioned that we only have 18 active participants in. so the sample size is relatively small. So, uh, so we, we will continue this human trial study and then we want to include more people. And then secondly, uh, the whole study was carried out in a totally controlled isolation room with very, a uh, relatively high, uh, air changing rates. So which might be a little bit different from your household. But, uh, I'm, uh, I'm showing you that our team is also, uh, doing this air sampling and random sampling in community households. So which between these two studies, we didn't really observe too much difference in terms of wireless concentration in the air and also only environmental surfaces. Another li- limitation is that we didn't really culture infectious wireless from the air samples and hand swaps. So in terms of this, we are improving our technique. To get a more sensible, uh, more sensitive, uh, cell line, and also we are going to improve our sampling method, and then finally we are using the wireless emission in the air and also wireless we found on the environmental surfaces to indicate contagious. But if if we want to truly understand the transmission risk, which will require a uh, naive sentinel participants, or maybe we can use a uh, susceptible animals as an indicate for the real transmission.
0: Just out of curiosity, do you know what the main motivations of participants were to volunteer to the study or and how they felt about it once it ended?
1: What we can tell you um, is that there was a lot of interest in the study. So over 25,000 people registered their interest in the study. In the end, as Jay mentioned, just 36 volunteers um, took part. Um, And our experience from the study um, is that people took part because they wanted to help. They wanted to do something at that time that they considered useful. Um, And I think that we saw that extensively throughout the pandemic. So, for example, with people signing themselves up for COVID vaccine trials, for treatment trials as well, um, I think people wanted to contribute to the medical effort. They saw research um, as a positive way forward to try to get us through the pandemic, but also... um, from my talking to participants, uh, a lot of people were just genuinely interested in the research as well. They're interested in how it's carried out um, and what we can find out um, that could then go on to help the health of other people. Thank you. That That is so interesting, I
0: think. <laughs> Finally, I just wanted to ask you what uh, the main open questions following your study are and uh, what you're focusing your research on right now.
1: From the from the perspective of the research that we describe in this paper, I think there's lots of really interesting open questions um, and I think they have real public health importance. Um, so we we do know that the cu- currently available uh, COVID vaccines, they're really great at preventing serious illness, but they have limited impact on infection and on transmission. And I'm interested in how we can go on to develop and hone the challenge model to be able to better test those vaccines of the future um, that are aiming to block transmission, such as the, the mucosal vaccines, for example. And in our paper, what we described was um, we saw a discordance sometimes between the amount of virus that a swab can pick up from your nose and throat, um, but then the actual amount of virus that you put out into the air um, that other people are then can then be exposed to. For example, in our study, we had some volunteers who had lots of virus there when we swabbed their noses and throats, but actually they emitted very little virus into their air. So what is going on there? Is there some aspect of their nasal re- immune response that's controlling that? And is there a way to understand and harness that? There's also a lot of other important questions that human challenge, I think, can uniquely help us to learn more about um, because of how controlled the study design is and how much um, detailed investigation you can do. Um, So, for example, as Jay touched on, why do some people seem to be more infectious than others, Um, those super spreaders um, that we saw, um, that was known to be really important in the early stages of the pandemic and we know that there were um, people in the community that really contributed to community spread through um, this sort of super spreading phenomenon. Also, what are the routes and the pathways that respiratory viruses in general transmit? So how much of it is airborne versus fomite? How does that change in different settings? with different viruses as well, not just SARS-CoV-2. And there's a lot that we still need to learn about that. Um, And also, um, as I think we found out to be really important in this pandemic, how much infectiousness occurs before you get symptoms. And that's a question that challenge studies can really help us to address, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but for other respiratory viruses as well you know, some of the new findings from this paper that Jay um, has touched on, um, it's really important to validate those um, through further studies, both um, in in the challenge setting, but also through the real world. So is it really that the majority of virus you emit is coming from your nose? Um, And what we've also found was that the majority of the virus that you emit was occurring after you get um, those early symptoms, those sort of first symptoms Um, Because if that's the case, I think that's important because it means that we should be telling the general public that your mask should be covering your nose if you want to protect other people um, and that you should take notes even of those um, minor early symptoms and you should go and get tested. And that, I think, is quite different to what the messaging was throughout the pandemic, where the focus really was on things like fever, cough, anosmia. Um, and those symptoms, they're useful for diagnostic purposes, they're useful for a case definition, but they may be less useful when we're thinking about people's infectiousness. For the model itself, um, now nowadays almost everybody has some immunity to COVID, either through vaccination or through prior infection. Um, and so what we want to do going forward is to establish a challenge model of breakthrough infection. So um, recruiting and infecting vaccinated people. Um, And so we hope to then be able to go on to test those novel vaccines and boosters, for example, um, those that may be able to give a broader cross-variant protection um, and vaccines that, again, as I said earlier, may be able to reduce or block transmission. Um, So at the moment, we're working on challenging vaccinated volunteers with the Delta variant, um, and the group will also be going um, ahead to do the same with the Omicron variant. Thank you. Uh,
0: thank you very much for your comprehensive answers. You can read Dr. Singanayagam and Dr. Zhu's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Drs. Singanayagam and Zhu and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with the Lancet microbe wherever you usually get your podcasts.